0: Story Number One Because Someone Had To Written by Mac Dye Why? A Kiltan child seated in the front row of the class of a like-age children from many races had raised their primary limb to gain the teacher's attention. It was rare for a child with such a young age showed interest in galactic history. But when learning of the liberation of one's race by a species that had lost everything in the process, even a naive child's attention was captivated. The class's teacher was a silent for a moment, studying the child that had asked the question. The Kultan still bore the genetic markers from centuries of slavery and biological conditioning, but even after just a few generations of freedom, they were fading. The humans always answered that question the same way because someone had to. The Terran ambassador had requested to speak before the council and had been granted the floor. You may speak. The speaker, Akiltaan Alda, stood at the foot of the council's dais. The creature's chitin crest was gilded with rare metals and was draped with expensive robes. But it was more than decoration. An expensive bauble flaunted by its masters an impressive representation of his species, purchased and modified for a unique task of standing motionless and speaking a clear, unaccented galactic common, and capable of little else, at least in the eyes of the council species. The Terran ambassador was an older man, dressed in a simple, if well tailored suit, and using an old wooden cane to counter an otherwise severe limp. The man approached the speaker's post, Located near the Kilton speaker, and stood still for a moment to study the larger, albeit older, creature in all its finery. Thank you, speaker. Council, I appreciate the opportunity to address the gathered signatory species. Members of the council were visibly irritated by the human's choice of addressing the speaker directly, and then them a second but the humans were new to the Senate and held only a minor place. Likely, this would be the first and quite possibly last time the human ambassador would be given the right to address the chamber. The various Senate members and representatives murmured and laughed at the human's crude behavior, but the old human simply stood leaning against his cane and waited for silence. The room died down in short order. Everyone had better things to do and gossiping about the humans was not one of them. When silence reigned again, the human cleared his throat and finally spoke. Humanity is a young species compared to many here, a mere 300,000 and some years from our more recent evolutionary ancestors till now. In our history are many dark truths of our past, things for which we hold no pride, but from which we have drawn strength and wisdom. He glanced at the Kiltan speaker for a moment, then looked directly at the Roshinian representative. Since joining the council and being granted a place in the senate, albeit a minor one, our philosophers and lawmakers have pored over the laws and standards held by this ruling body. Humanity had arrived in the council's awareness scant few years prior. Little was known of them, mostly due to the apathy on the part of many of the signatory species and the council itself. They had met the minimum requirements for membership and had levied the mandated fees. A little more was expected of them. The private sector would sort out the fledgling race and likely drive them to crippling debt, as was so often the case with minor races. We have known slavery only 300 years ago was its practice finally abolished entirely amongst my own people. We believe the practice abhorrent. I believe that any one lineage, nation, or species is inherently subservient to folly. We learned long ago that divisions in class based on race or gender simply limits the potential of the population. There were angry murmurs throughout the chamber. The council itself grew restless and simmering rage. That an upstart race in new petition with assembly would make such a bold and aggressive statement. It was once believed that women were second-class citizens, that they would stay in the home, raise the children, and cook the meals, that they could not be scientists or politicians or doctors. It was once believed that the people of Africa were subhumans, capable of only mimicking civilized customs and were suited to little outside hard labor. Wars were fought amongst my own people to bring an end to such beliefs, laws, laws, were passed on basic requirements and rights for every human. Constitutions were rewritten. The angry rumbling of the assembled Senate grew, but were howled from full outburst by the staying hand of the Silluance Councilor, who glared the cold, yellow eyes at the small, frail human below. As such, I had been directed by my leaders to put forth a, um, motion to the Council. He turned his face to the Council rather than the assembled Senate members, the practice of slavery is to be abolished and all species to be given free and equal standing on the Senate. The worlds of their birth and any former colonies return to their own rule and the reparations be paid. Naturally, not something that can be achieved overnight, but we are prepared to offer economic boons and education to help facilitate the transition. The ambassador's tone was caught forward and calm, no sense of sarcasm. It was as if the statement could only have been of the one logical response from the Senate and Council, to accept the Terence terms. The outrage boiled over, a mindless roar of accusations, threats, and insults spilled forth from the Senate onto the human ambassador, who simply stood leaning on his cane and studying the Council, then turned his attention to the Speaker, who simply stood staring at the old human in disbelief He would not dare hope, of course, but he could appreciate the words of what would soon surely be another enslaved species pressed into service for the council. At a gesture from the council species, the senate quieted. The eldest of the council races stood then, a towering creature of scaled hide and crooked fanged jaw. The siloents have ruled the stars for thousands of your years. We have conquered a dozen empires before the council was even formed. Tell your leaders that no upstart younglings will dictate to the council. Yours shall be just another footnote in history, and your descendants shall work in chains for their betters. The ambassador smiled at the speaker and then looked up the Siloan's councillor. A young race we are, yes, but uh, know this. Four hundred years ago, we landed on our home world's moon. Twenty years prior, we split the atom. Forty years before that, we discovered flight. We have known war without end for all of two hundred millennia of existence. And should you choose war, you should quickly learn how far we have come from the first fire-hardened spear to now. Four hundred years. Your grandfather sat in that chair, Counselor. He came to and from his palatial estate in the same luxury shuttle you use. He rested both hands on his cane and studied the councillor's races, a hint of amusement showing through. Four hundred years ago, the same patrol vessels monitored your shipping lanes, as those same ships have for four hundred years before that, and likely would four hundred years from now, had nothing changed. You have been stagnant for thousands of years, councillors, peaked, crested, and contented. Three hundred thousand years ago, my ancestors forged spears with branches and flame. Do you wish to learn what our spears look like today? Another sudden surge of violent outcry from the Senate, the councillors themselves driven to rage, and the human ambassador simply looked at the speaker again. To call for war echoed through the Senate and was eagerly received by the Council. But the human ambassador had known all along that there could have only ever been one outcome. Why? the speaker asked, and the ambassador simply smiled sadly. Because someone had to. End of part one. Because somebody had to, part two. The children were all quiet, all watching the teacher, all glancing at the Kilton classmate. They were young and knew little of the conflict which had torn the galaxy asunder so many years ago. They knew it was only the Liberation Wars or the Great Rebellion. It was celebrated annually with great gatherings and moments of silence to honor the war dead and to appreciate the liberties and freedoms gained to lament the horrors of the past and what had been lost. The Kiltan child was silent, its second manipulator scratching as it carapaced underbelly with a nervous energy. How? It took the council two of their years to assemble the fleet to deal with the humans, but the humans had been prepared even before the ambassador spoke to the senate. I beg your forgiveness, Counselor, but it is wise for someone of such importance as yourself to accompany the fleet. We know little of the Terran military capabilities. The Grand Admiral of the Punitive Fleet stood next to the seated Saluence Counselor. The fleet had finished assembling and was now navigating its way across the gravity wall of an unnamed dead star. One hundred and seventeen vessels from various Senate species had gathered in the independent squadrons. They were only minutes from making their first jump into what was believed to be the Terran-controlled space, the location of the first contact between the Terran merchant marines and the Council patrol ship. They have been a spacefaring for only 400 years. The Siloans have ruled the stars for thousands. Whatever these humans may believe, their place amongst the stars shall be at our feet. The counselor's tone was dismissive and irritated. Irritated had the Admiral commanding four of battleships and associated escorts and support vessels. It would prove more than enough. Admiral! Multiple energy spikes ahead there are! The bridge crew Admiral's command ship erupted in sudden activity as reports started coming in. Sensors are down! Through the looming windows of the command deck, the flashes of dozens of ships dropping out of FDL could be clearly seen. Hunter's roar reports unidentified targets and weapon locks. There are unknown ships all around us. What's going on? The Grand Admiral stalked into the center of the command deck and confusion continued. Crew worked diligently to find an answer for the Admiral, but strange reports continued to flood the terminals. Kinetic penetration starboard, casualties reported on the soaring wind. The barrage of contact reports were streaming in from the various ships of the punitive fleet. All guns, target, and fire at all viable targets. The Admiral barked the order as he became overwhelmed by the total lack of information that he was being provided with. And even as he was finished speaking, the battleship shuddered as weapons fire impacted the heavy armored hull. Hull breach, gun decks, casualty reports coming in, more unidentified targets, gun decks targeting and returning fire. The councillor sat, unmoving, frozen with rage, with a great punitive fleet at being made fools of, and there was nothing he could do about it, not that that mattered to him. With each shudder of the ship's hull and confused, useless reports by the command stations, He found himself just a bit closer to simply striking the Grand Admiral down and ordering a withdrawal of the fleet. Sir, emergency call from the militias. They have been boarded and they have lost control of engineering and central computer. And then, suddenly, everything stopped. Admiral, system security has identified an unknown signal and blocked it. Systems are coming back online now. The Admiral turned towards the speaker. The ship's onboard computer technician rarely had anything to say during combat maneuvers. What are you talking about? There are a series of micro-satellites around the fleet, Admiral. They were inert, and the computer wrote them off as simple debris. They activated when we came into range, and they began attacking our systems. The technician shrank in his chair, expecting the Admiral, or more likely the Counselor, to explode with rage at the discovery. There was a moment of silence as the bridge crew struggled to clear the remaining errors and censor ghosts from their system. The Grand Admiral could only glare out the window of his ship towards where the FTL flashes of what must have been a human fleet had entered the system. What's the situation? The Silowin's counselor addressed the sensor operator, who was frantically trying to clear the errors of the ship's sensors. There are, um There are no enemy ships around us, counselor. The fleet was firing on itself. The counselor rose from his seat and approached the sensor operator's station, and the crew member only had time to realize someone had approached before the counselor had grabbed the crewman's throat from behind, clawing fingers digging deep into the leathery hide with ease. Blood sprayed across the terminal, followed by thick strands of viscera as the operator's throat was torn free and flicked upon the terminal. His death was slow. The Admiral and much of the bridge crew remained silent as their dying crew member thrashed on the floor in a quickly widening puddle of blood, and the Counselor stalked back to his seat. But before he could sit, the communicator's operator suddenly spun around. The Grand General stared at the display, his mind racing to understand. Again, what was happening? Every ship in the fleet displaying some degree of battle damage and his communications officer was in the heated argument with the captain of the militias over the apparent fake report of having been boarded. The bridge door opened and a fresh crew darted into the sensor station, coldly dragging their dead predecessor routed the way and setting to work. "'Enemy ships ahead and closing fast. I am having trouble fixing their position, sir. They are employing active and passive stealth measures.' "'Admiral to the fleet, I have nothing to say to the politicians haven't already.' Today, we fired the first shots in a war we have been preparing for for years. You know your duty and what's at stake. Do your children proud. The human admiral, a stately woman in steel grey hair and sharp features, stood on the bridge of the Independence, the largest carrier in the Terran fleet. The ship's captain continued to see the vessel's preparations for the coming battle. The admiral surveyed the fleet on the holographic display. Fifty warships, the best humanity could produce, were arrayed in their formation, and the carrier group was deploying squadrons of strike craft. They were outnumbered more than two to one. The punitive fleet had almost three times the tonnage of her fleet, and would employ tactics and formations that had been proven in combat for centuries. But they were fractured, Each Senate species' ships operated as an independent entity rather than an extension of a whole. The Grand Admiral would be commanding the ship on which they rode, as well as dictating orders to the rest of the fleet. Orders that would then be interpreted differently by every sub-admiral, who, in turn, commanded their own ship and their own fleet. They would be slow to respond to changes in battle. The opening salvo from the human fleet came in the form of electronic warfare. The admiral glanced to her left the holographic display of the ship's combat AI, modeled after the ancient goddess Athena, who was coordinating with five other combat AIs of the fleet. They barraged the punitive fleet with signals and false readings, actively infiltrating their communications networks and wreaking havoc in their fleet's ability to function coherently. The second salvo was kinetic. Torpedoes leapt ahead, arcing high above and below the plane of punitive force was arrayed along, before coming to a stop and going dark, waiting to pounce when Athena and her siblings gave the signal. Depleted uranium penetrators were launched at fractions of the speed of light, the flashing across the void between the two enemy fleets meant more to force the enemy out of formation than to actually strike the enemy's ships. And waves of strike craft fanned out ahead of the human fleet, racing towards the reading council fleet, carrying payloads of high-yield nuclear warheads that would soon seed the battle space with pulses of electromagnetic radiation, both to further scramble the enemy's senses and to obscure the human fleet. The ensuing battle was brief and bloody, in only a few short hours, the punitive fleet was shattered, two-thirds of the numbers crippled or destroyed, but humanity had underestimated the Senate species' dedication to the Council's directive, or perhaps their fear of reprisal for failure. Where damaged human ships would withdraw, Senate vessels were just little likely to launch themselves forward with suicidal intent, ramming human ships and dying in the effort. Over half the human fleet were lost in battle, often with all hands. A dozen senate ships sacrificed themselves to cover the retreat of the Grand Admiral's flagship, although by that point the siluans' counselor had assumed personal command, after killing the Admiral, of course. It was a victory for the young upstarts, but a paraic one, and set to the tone of the conflict to come. End of part number two Narrator's note. The next story is a more detailed representation of the battle at the end of the previous part. However, this was written after the miniseries was completed. I'll be putting the story here where it is in the timeline of the story. End of narrator's note. Because someone had to. The first battle, part one. Admiral to the fleet, I've nothing to say that the politicians haven't already. Today, we fire the first shots in a war that we have been preparing for for years. You know your duty and what's at stake. Do your children proud. The human admiral, a stately woman with steel-gray hair and sharp features, stood on the Bridge of the Independence, the largest carrier in the Terran fleet. The ship's captain continued to see to the vessel's preparations for the coming battle. The admiral surveyed the fleet and the holographic display. Fifty warships, the best that humanity could produce, were arrayed in their formations, and the carrier group was deploying squadrons of strike craft. They were outnumbered more than two to one. The punitive fleet had almost three times the tonnage to her fleet, and would employ tactics and formations that had been proven in combat for centuries. But they were fractured. Each Senate species' ships operated as an independent entity rather than an extension of the whole. The Grand Admiral would be commanding the ship with which they rode, as well as dictating orders to the rest of the fleet. Orders that would then be interpreted differently by every sub-admiral, who in turn commanded their own ship and their own fleet. They would be slow to respond to changes in the battle. The opening salvo from the human fleet came in the form of more electronic warfare. The Admiral glanced to her left to the holographic display of the ship's combat AI, modeled after the ancient goddess of Athena, who was coordinating with five other combat AIs of the fleet. They barraged the punitive fleet with signals and false readings, actively infiltrating their communications network and wreaking havoc on the fleet's ability to function coherently. The second salvo was kinetic, torpedoes led ahead, arcing high up above and below the plane that the punitive fleet was arrayed along, before coming to a stop and going dark, waiting to bounce when Athena and her siblings gave the signal. Depleted uranium penetrators were launched at fractions of the speed of light, flashing across the void towards the enemy fleet, meant more to force the enemy out of formation than to actually strike the enemy ships. And waves of strikecraft fanned out ahead of the human fleet, racing towards the Reading Council fleet, carrying payloads of high-yield nuclear warheads and armor penetrating missiles. Counselor, the human fleet are advancing. They have launched the kinetic weapons at the Sheldante fleet, and they are maneuvering to avoid the kinetic spotted trajectories. The Grand Admiral stood in the center of the bridge, assessing the advancing human fleet while his crew processed the chosen courses of action of the dozen member races' fleets and made the information available to him. He then, in turn, had ordered his own fleet to adjust course, and nodded in approval as the various sub-admiral formations made orderly course corrections. It had fanned the punitive fleet out across the larger frontage, but they would continue to advance till those useless kinetics splashed through the region his fleet no longer occupied. You're all running from the first shots these young upsots fire, Grand Admiral. Afraid of such crude weapons. Victory is assured. Start acting like it. The guns of the tone was sharp, acid laced, threatening. The Grand Admiral was quickly reminded that anything short of a perfect and aggressive victory would be likely not be rewarded, nor would be letting his ship near enough the enemy that the guns would put the counselor at risk, meaning that he would have to hang back and allow the sub-admirals and their member race fleets to do the brunt of the work. The humans had a mere fifty ships, some too small to even be called proper warships, much like the pathetic ramshackle crafts of the Shalonda fleet, but two rivaled even the Grand Admiral's command ship in size. They were strikingly different in design. One knife-shaped and long, its surface layered in what his staff were certain were weapon batteries, some sort of battleship, he had assumed. It would receive the most attention from his fleet's guns. The other, a massive rectangular thing, was covered in what seemed to be loading blaze, a mobile repair and fueling ship, perhaps one capable of serving an entire fleet. It was a sure sign that the human fleet was acting far beyond its operational boundaries, and without that one ship would surely never be able to operate so far from known human space. We will make an example of the warship at the fore of the human formation, Our weapons will tear it asunder, and the rest of their fleet will surrender to you, Counselor. The Grand Admiral was confident of this. His people had never known defeat. After all, they were the most powerful of the Alliance species. The Counselor was the most powerful of the Council. They had dozens of slave species, controlled hundreds of worlds. The humans would soon learn the hard way, the error of their cause. Of course, there was still the question of what had happened to his fleet mere minutes before the human fleet had arrived. The false reports the fading senses, the fact that his ships had fired upon each other. Despite the strange signal that his newly appointed communications technician had found, he simply could not believe that it had been the case. The humans surely could not have had any part of it. His gaze locked on the two-dimensional display of the human fleet, which hung on a monitor above him. The enemy's fleet continued to advance at the same speed as when it had first appeared. The display tracked the kinetic projectiles' advance. His crew estimated the moment his fleet would pass those useless hunks of metal, no more dangerous than a meteor to a ship that could simply move out of the way. There was a brief flicker on the image. Nothing changed. No delays. No ships out of position. No loss of information. The human fleet continued to advance. The member race fleets continued to outmaneuver the crude kinetic weapons. Inform the sub-admirals to mark the enemy's large craft as their priority target. And good hunting. Loki has infiltrated the communications network, Admiral. He is downright giddy, ma'am. They have so many holes in their security nets because it has to be compatible with each member race's own systems to allow for them to cooperate. Athena and the fleet's other five combat AIs reported directly to the Admiral, despite technically being housed in six different ships in the fleet. Athena called the battleship Georgius Averrof home, while Loki's home was actually the supercarrier Hermes. Although the mischievous AI was currently gallivanting about through the Alliance's communications network, laying the groundwork for his next trick. Three of the other four AIs were working closely with the squadron commanders, directing the stealth torpedoes and coordinating squadrons of drone strike craft that worked in tandem with the human piloted fighters and bombers. The two had yet to arrive, but it wasn't far behind. Athena, in turn, was the most senior of the fleet's A.I. staff, and she coordinated and assisted the Admiral, acting in part as one of her own support staff. That she was willing to entrust the Georgius Everoff to her human crew was a sign of the trust and faith that she had in their abilities. It was, after all, her home. The Admiral only smiled, her hands dancing across the three-dimensional holographic display of both her and the enemy's fleets. Data markers, ship symbols, and squadron numbers, intricate series of colored lines, marking trajectories, and weapon ranges. Around her, her staff worked to get the finishing touches on the formations and targeting priorities for dozens of squadrons of piloted crafts that were swarming ahead of the Hermes. Movements for the subformations of destroyers and cruisers, all meant to lure the enemy in on the Georgia Savarov. Athena asked Loki to be ready to begin in ten minutes, and informed Captain Everett to be ready for Gorgias the- Averoff's main cannons. Those arrogant bastards were kind enough to break up their formations for us, but I want them shaken up a bit more for the hounds arrive. She again glanced at the powerful AI, fashioned after the ancient Greek goddess of war, and shared a smile with the holographic image. Of course, Admiral, Athena smiled, as she studied the tracker on the Kung Bambuti's people's creator are the deity of the Great Hunter, telemetry, and position. Grand Admiral, the duty-appointed communications officer, sat in the station near his former colleague, studiously, ignoring the dried blood on the seat and poorly scrubbed from the monitors. The Salucian technician studied the readings his station provided with an intense curiosity, as the reports of the Salucian fleet were providing seemed to contradict each other but every time he received such a report and flagged it for the Grand Admiral's attention, the fire would vanish or suddenly be located in a different location. He frowned for a moment and then scalded fresh along the snout pulling away from the rows of mislined fangs, clawed hands curling and scraping nervously against the flanks of his controls. The Grand Admiral's punitive fleet ignored the technician as a myriad of captains and the Suluans, a portion of the fleet petitioned for their right to lead the vanguard against the large human warship. Even as the two fleets continued to close in on each other, and the other member race fleets advanced on their own routes, following their plans for the individual admirals. Grand Admiral, I think," snarled in annoyance, and waved off the captains and turned to the technician. He could feel the Counselor's eyes on him, had impatient glare. What is it, signaler? What is so important? I think um I think there's something wrong with our He didn't get to finish. The census technician suddenly leapt from his console, whirling around to the Grand Admiral. The throne spear is hit. The Grand Admiral suddenly lost all interest in the communications technician's pointless ramblings, instead turning to the new distraction. Anger and confusion welling up in him. What? Show me! The sensors tech transferred it to one of the Grand Admiral's monitors, where it replaced the reported courses of the member race fleets. On screen, the Saluan's warships were tumbling and breaking apart. It had been struck almost head on, and the vessel warped and twisted from both the sudden force of the impact and the briefly continued to push against the main engines. Even as he watched, detonations tore the engines free from the spiraling ship, and, for almost a comical moment, they lunged away from the dead craft before detonating. What caused this? He turned to his senses operator, prowling across the bridge to the suddenly nervous technician station. It was the human ship, Grand Admiral. It was detected almost at the same time as the thrown spear was hit. The technician scrambled to throw the towering commander an imagery of what had happened. A bright flash of light on the nose of the large human ship, and only a few seconds later, the thrown spear was floundering. His mind raced to understand what had happened. The humans were still minutes away from entering his fleet's longest weapons ranges, and even once the ranges of those furthest reaching guns, there was little chance of accurately hitting anything but the humans clearly didn't need to work under the same limitations. He watched the image replay a second time, and then the image changed. The human ship was closer, and the same flash of light pulsed from its prow. One of the Saldante warships exploded next. The ram-shackle craft simply disintegrated into a rapidly expanding cloud of debris, and the rest of the Saldante fleet immediately began to spread out. Swaying through space much like the movement of a sea creature through water. All ships of the punitive fleet, evasive actions. Athena, compliment your crew for me, would you? First blood goes to the Georgia Zabaroff. The admiral flashed a predatory grin as he watched the second enemy ship die. One of her staff glanced up at the old war clock mounted on the wall and sent orders to the subformations to begin their next phase of maneuvers. Naturally, although the clock itself was ancient, practically had required some modernization of the inner mechanisms, ensuring its accuracy. Of course, Admiral Oki reports he's ready to begin, and the Hound should be here shortly. The Athena AI smiled as well. Less predatory, but coldly confident of what the outcome would be. The enemy fleet was so slow to respond, so easily infiltrated. Too many commanders, each trying to do everything themselves. They were about to learn many important lessons the hard way. She was certain. Loki, you may begin and ask him to stop changing my desktop background, would you? First destroyer group consisted of five warships. They were built for speed, meant to get in close and hit hard before racing away. Skirmishers meant to harass the enemy's center or work around their flanks, and the five ships were racing towards one of the enemy's main separate formations, a dozen crafts belonging to one of the many member races. Little more than a well-treated slaves to the council species. Captain Granger almost felt bad for them. The crews aboard those ships were simply doing what they had been taught was right. They were fighting to maintain the order of things, Everything that they knew and believed in, he couldn't hate them for that, but he could pity them. They had never been shown a better way, were ignorant to the possibility of such a thing. And they wouldn't be alive to see the sort of future their children would have. It was a sobering thought, one that he had spent many hours in the confessions and discussion with the ship's chaplain, but he had come to terms with it. War was a terrible thing, but sometimes, violence could open the door to peace. All hands, the hounds are expected to arrive shortly. Nav, full speed ahead. We need to close the distance. Ready weapons, as soon as the enemy ships can be confirmed as an F- Allow them a chance to reach any escape pods that they may have, or to try and quit the battle themselves. He sat on the bridge of his ship and glanced at the screen that showed him the trajectories and statuses of the other ships of the first destroyer group. A few squadrons from the Hermes had moved to join them, and they flew in the wake of the destroyers, ready to race ahead or provide close support depending on how the enemy responded. The enemy ships were piecemeal and haphazardly built, and some looked very old indeed, as if they had been overhauled continuously over many generations of owners. They had also been the first of the enemy formations to begin evasive maneuvers to avoid the Georgius Averrof's main guns. A sign that, at least compared to the other many commanders of the Finimid's fleet, they were a bit quicker on the uptake, but not quick enough. Unvome technically shared his AI software across multiple drone vessels. The more that were gathered in the formation, the more of them assigned to his control, the more computational power the AI had. He had never been assigned to more than three. For this battle, he had twelve. Using an experimental FTL relay, his drone craft could travel almost instantaneously to aligned beacons, beacons like the microsatellites that had been seeded along the edges of human space, awaiting the arrival of the enemy fleet. The Shaldante fleet unknowingly advanced through the second cloud of these tiny satellites. They didn't know that the Loki AI had already begun infiltrating their communication networks, spreading through the enemy fleet like a virus. He worked subtly, creating false telemetry reports, creating delays in various systems, but many of the enemy ships didn't rely heavily on automation as the human fleets. He couldn't directly influence systems that relied entirely on mortal crews to function, or that were directly interfaced with the communication systems. Luckily, senses were, and sensors could easily be fooled. The flash of light of the arrival of the Convom and his hounds cast shadows on the lead Chaldante ship's bridge crew on the back wall. Many raised their arms to shield their eyes, despite the automatic tinting of the windows to shield them from harm they barely had a chance to process the sudden appearance of twelve impossibly sleek, tiny warships, each smaller than the Sheldante warships, an impressive feat, considering that the old Dutch were about waist height to an adult human. The twelve hounds appeared already moving at full speed, and flashed past the lead Sheldante ship to plunge into the fleet into its wake. Demonstrating an ability to calculate firing solutions, load and launch payloads, and maneuver that far outstripped anything the Sheldante could manage, the crew of the lead ship were hardly able to process that those ships had even arrived, before the shields were raked with thousands of one-kilogram kinetic penetrators. The Sheldante warship's shields flashed brightly and vanished in an instant and those same penetrators moving at tens of thousands of kilometers per second in the exact opposite direction of the Sildante ship itself, moving tens of thousands of kilometers per second towards those penetrators, vanished in a cloud of debris as fast as the shields had vanished. The second and third ship of the Sultante formation didn't fare much better. The Grand Admiral tried to not tuck his chin under his counselor's glare, a natural reaction, meant to protect one's fragile throat to a more aggressive male, and an embarrassingly cowardly feature to see in the full task to lead the first punitive fleet assembled in hundreds of years. The Counselor wasn't even sure why the Grand Admiral was so worried. Certainly, he had lost a few ships already and had yet to even fire a shot in return, but the battle was early yet. Of course, should the humans prove to have more surprises than the most experienced commander in the Siluan fleet could anticipate, the fool would have a reason to start thinking about hiding his throat from him. The counselor remained in his lavish seat aboard the flagship bridge, idly scraping dried blood from the scales of his hand, or from under his claws, while the Grand Admiral delivered his report to the fleet's progress. He had nothing flattering to say of the Senate race fleets, the Senate members' species had assembled fleets of the best crews and bravest commanders, all tasked to further their species' values to the council races by any means necessary. Despite that, they had begun to fall apart as they neared the human fleet, slow to respond to orders, slow to maneuver and push towards the humans, slow to share the sensor data. Yet more evidence of how inferior they were, how much like a foolish game animals they were. And then, something changed. A flash of light distant, and certainly minutes old by the time he sought, confusion rocked the Grand Admiral and his crew, as the sensor operator clearly had no idea what was going on, despite how close that pulse of light had been. The counselor was no master of fleets and tactics, but it was obvious that the Grand Admiral was not nearly as qualified as the Siluan Emperor had been led to believe. And then... Something else changed. The tactical displays and sensors' reports flickered and refreshed, displaying a very different information than they had moments before. The communications operator let out a pleased, if frustrated hiss at the same time. Grand Admiral, the humans are interfering with our system somehow. The counselor's gaze locked on the tactical display of the Grand Admiral's station. A dozen unknown ships were tearing through the Soldante fleet, were three of their numbers destroyed and four others damaged as those unknown ships passed through the tiny alien formations, far too fast and safe for their crews. And a formation of human ships had rapidly closed the distance, ready entering the weapons range of those debris fields and was the lead Chaldante vessel. And weapons lock warnings were flashing on the ships of the Kiliant Consortium as the 17 vessels representing five different economic powerhouses scattered to escape dozens of previously stealth torpedoes, many of those ships scattered the wrong way, and flew themselves into the path of another formation of human warships that had closed much faster than the Grand Admiral's crew had been tracking previously. The communications operator called over two additional crew to help sort through the sudden rush of reports and messages from the rest of the fleet. The large human warship let out another flash of light and a second silhouetted warship was struck, a glancing blow which tore away meters of armored hull and an entire wing and one of the three main engines, causing the vessel to list and begin to spiral in a surge forward and away from the original course. He simply sat and watched the Saldante fleet struggle to break away from the sudden enemy strike, while the Killian Consortium fleet scattered and was overrun by more human warships. While that large warship at the center, with its impossible main guns, continued to approach directly into the heart of the punitive fleet's formation. Watched as the Grand Admiral floundered into uncertainty, visibly shaken by how suddenly everything was changing, watched while a member of the worker class, one of the lowest of Siloan society, worked the communication terminal and, although clearly struggling due to the lower intelligence, common to such low class, was working actively to deal with the problem. It was disgusting. First destroyer group to form up on Valiant, close to the 500 kilometers and advance to engagement speed. Captain Garange's fingers danced through the holographic command relay next to his seat, making a minor adjustments to his group's formation and target priorities. Kan formation of hounds had punched clear through the enemy formation, leaving a pair of enemy warships floundering in the wake and many of the others struggling to repair spot fractures of their shields and hull breaches from the impacts of the scatterable munitions lovingly nicknamed Ball Bearings, for obvious reasons. But the enemies, the Chaldante, had put up a fight. One of the Hounds was lost in a brief second that they passed through the enemy fleet, and the two others were damaged. An impressive feat, considering both the sheer speed of the Hounds moved at and the reaction speed of the controlling AI. First destroyer group met with the enemy at almost the same moment as the second destroyer group, which descended upon the Calian Consortium's fleet, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away. The Valiant closed in with four other destroyers on her flanks, catching up from behind the Shaldante fleet, and Garanger nodded at the weapons officer as they came within range. Deck guns raised from the armored housings and spun to bring the nearest enemy ship to bear. Flashes and heat from the barrels was answered by the flaring of the shattering of the Shaldante ship's shields already weakened by the passing of the hounds. Its hull twisted and melted. Chunks were cast away, the ships outer hull made haphazardly lay its slabs of salvage and modules. It dropped speed immediately, though, and suddenly fell away from the valiant weapons arcs, and its own weapons flashed kinetic penetrators against the destroyer's shields. The navigator was forced to alter course to avoid the field of debris the enemy ships had cast off which briefly exposed their weaker rear shields to the enemy's fire, which was directed ahead and along the Valiant's course, knowing it was better to let the Valiant run into kinetics rather than try and fire chasing shots from the rear. Their weapons may have been far behind what the humans could field, but the crews were no fools and knew how to employ them and how to think on their feet. Admiral, first destroyer group is clear of the Sheldante formation, major damage reported. Three additional enemy ships confirmed sunk. Athena smiled with the pride of the first destroyer group, raced ahead of the Sheldante fleet and began circling around, intent on making another pass through their formation. Convom's hounds were racing towards the next formation in the enemy's fleet, a loose formation of bulky, heavily armored warships of the Worelia, a predator-evolved species with thick hides and bony plates. Known to kill their prey by wearing them down or crushing them under the massive weight, their ships followed the same mentality as their evolution: fast and short bursts, coated in thick armor, meant for brutal close-in fighting. Another species, eager to prove its usefulness to the council races, eager to earn itself a higher station. The admiral nodded as she turned, made the finishing touches to the main fleet's formation. Second destroyer group had met fiercer resistance, as one of the Killian consortium vessels, engines damaged by the chaser fire from the second, floundered on its course and crossed the path of the Testament. The crew of the Testament had barely avoided a full collision, instead scraping across the enemy's hull, but both vessel shields had flared out and died on impact. The Testament was damaged but still able to maneuver at speed, and had begun to break off from the second destroyer group to make its way back towards the main fleet's rear and away from the battle. B will be entering range of the enemy's long-range weapons shortly, ma'am. One of his staff had finished studying the tactical data Loki had provided, and was busy working with Athena to estimate the dispersion pattern of the enemy would use to fire at the main fleet. Affirmative. Inform the rest of the fleet to make evasive actions as necessary. Georgia Savaroff is to maintain a heading and show those fools the error of their way. The Admiral glanced at a tactical display of the Georgius Savaroff. Tens of meters of prow armor, a dozen separate antimatter reactors, dedicated entirely to multiple shield emitters. It was a flying tank and was befitting a proper battleship meant to wade in and take a beating and dish out a better than it got. All fleets are to open fire on the behemoth. Tell the Chardante fleet to stop dying like the cowards they are. They are to do everything, everything in their power to break those damn humans. Still outnumber them, damn it all. The Grand Admiral was growing harried over the sudden and brief surges of information. Something was clearly wrong. One moment he would be flagged by a dozen priority messages from the communications crew, and then those messages would vanish. His sensors operator couldn't answer why he could not confirm how far their enemy's large central warship was, let alone where exactly the rest of the damned fleet was. And all the while, the counselor watched him and those dangerous vicious eyes. Clearly, the counselor was not much impressed with the Grand Admiral of the Punitive Force, and he grew more nervous. Weapons range confirmed to main target, Grand Admiral. The census technician struggled to clear the information that seemed to be actively battling him at every step of the way. All ships, lock and fire! Fire! The Georgia Sabarov plowed directly into the heart of the enemy's fire. The rest of the fleet, relying on the Athena and the Admiral's staff calculations and estimates, made minor course corrections to avoid the brunt of the enemy's fleet through at them. Minutes passed, and the main human fleet's formation swelled and then began to close in again. And then, the Georges Everoth was lit up with a small sun. Its shields spread constantly as all sorts of munitions struck harmlessly against the impossibly powerful shields, or struck down by the swaying arms of the interceptor fire. Loaded with tracer rounds, more for show to dishearten the enemy further than any practical targeting reasoning. Nuclear warheads, kinetic penetrators, an array of energy weapons all failed to penetrate the battleship's shields and defenses, and it carried past the brunt of the enemy via with a pulse of light of its own making, and, and another enemy warship detonated as it was struck by the battleship's main guns. Gathering party leader Fulian grasped the navigation struts with his family ship, glaring at the display screens that showed the gracefully turning enemy ships. The young race that had thundered out of the Aether with insults and spat in the face of tradition, and all that was right in accordance with the gods themselves. Those five enemy ships had turned through the ships and his cousins and had escaped unharmed, but not again. His clan was down to less than half of what he'd answered their leader's call, his sons and daughters serving aboard the other ships of the Sheldante's Tithe to the council's call to arms had been lost so quickly. These people had never been built for war. They were tiny compared to the other races of the Senate and were little better than animals in the eyes of most of their betters, as was their place. But there was some hope amongst these people that if they acquitted themselves well in this war with the humans, they would rise in station. Nay, were the first to officially answer the council's call, after all. His crew struggled to ready the weapons and grapples. They were scavenging race and knew little of fighting with ships. They usually just swept through battlefields in the aftermath of fighting, gathering salvage and supplies, not actually committing to the battle itself. One of his cousins brought his vessel ahead of Fudian's, shielding it with his body as the human warships approached again. He could see the effects of those perfectly identical ships had on his cousin's vessel, as blossoms of heat tore along the patchwork hull and chunks of debris were cast loose. But it worked. Just as the cousin ship floundered and dropped away, its engines crippled from the blow that cut clear through the ship's prow and poorly reinforced interior. The lead enemy warship came into range. He issued no command. His family knew what they were about. The main guns caused the ship to shudder violently, metal screaming as it twisted by chatter of cannons everything that they had into the path of the lead enemy ship, and before they came abreast, electromagnetically charged grapples were launched, drawing massive cables with them into the void of space. They punched through the enemy's shields, weakened by the main guns of his cousin's vessels and in his own, and dug deep into the armored hull. When they dug in, vacuum welded themselves into the metal of the human ship's The two vessels passing in different directions found themselves connected by those massive cables and spools of which locked in the moment their grapples had found purchase. Furian knew what would happen next. His family knew. They knew there was nothing to be done but say their final prayers as those grapples were fired. Knowing that their actions offered the rest of their people a chance for a better future. Perhaps not as slave's food and entertainment for the Council Racers. Captain Garanger watched as the lead Sheldante ship had broken apart and had refused to break off, instead shielding the next ship in the formation with which its own quickly shattered hull. The Valiant shield spread constantly as they impacted the lead ship's shots of debris field and began to collapse as they met the second enemy's fire. The rest of the first destroyer group held the same formation as during the first pass, and the Chaldante fleet would run between the three columns of destroyers and likely torn to shreds in the process. The fools refused to surrender, refused to abandon ship. It was a terrible... In fact, all hands br- He was just beginning to turn to look at the sensor operator, who had just detected what was about to happen seconds too late. The grapples had launched by the second Chaldante punched through their weakened shields and dug into the hull of the Valiant, and their cables pulled tight. The Valiant was jerked off course too sharply for the inertial dampness to compensate. It spun hard to port, as the second Chaldante ship, to which they were connected, fired its engines at full power. The two vessels spun and broke apart. Huge chunks of their hulls were opened to the vent atmosphere, and exposed their crews to the vacuum of space. Not that any of the ship were alive to worry about it. End of First Battle Part 1 First Battle Part 2 An hour into the battle, and the Grand Admiral had begun to realize something. A second and a third Kylian Consortium vessel was crippled and rapid succession, both struck and sunk by the human torpedoes. The weapons were too fast, too maneuverable. Alone, it would not have been such an issue, but they were also too small, too hard to detect and track, and there were so many of them seated along the axis of the fleet's advance. He had to admit that despite the fractured leadership and the spineless natures of the consortium CEOs and administrators, their fleets were conducting itself well. Far better than the Shaldante, whose last three vessels were trying to outrun the four human warships that had pursued them. That the Shaldante had drawn first blood was a moot point. The killian fleet had regrouped, perhaps relying upon strength in numbers as it circled about, trying to bring the four enemy warships hounding them into grips. Seventeen warships against four should have made it for a quick, viciously one-sided battle, but those torpedoes... Seventeen became fifteen before the two fleets met again, and as those two formations passed each other, the Killian ships had suddenly splintered again. Some broke off formation, others purposely used their own allies as shields, or made disastrous course corrections that forced their brethren upon the human guns. Fifteen became twelve. While the four human warships flashed through their ranks disgustingly unscathed, their shields flashing flitfully from the few Killian Consortium weapons that found their marks, only one of the four remaining destroyers seemed to sustain any serious damage, breaking away from the companions to make its way back behind the main human fleet. And then, those tiny man craft of the human had deployed took their own toll as they followed the human warships through their formation. Detonations. Dozens of high-yield warheads lit up the darkness of the surface with the terrifyingly beautiful orbs of zero-gravity nuclear detonations. The spines of two or more Kilian warships were broken. Another was shattered from a series of internal detonations. It tore asunder an aft section, its engines still powered, leapt ahead on the erratic course and into the path of two more Kilian ships, which had been jockeying each other, as if to force one or the other to be destroyed by the humans. Both ships panicked to avoid the rapidly accelerating engine section, causing them to glide. In one pass, half of the Kalian Consortium fleet was destroyed or disabled. An hour into the battle, the punitive fleet had lost twenty ships and the humans only two, with two more damaged enough to quit the battle. At least, that's what the intermittent communications were telling him. Senses were telling him that the Kidian Consortium was still engaging with the human ships. The communications from the Killian and Sheldante were conflicting and awkward. Reports arrived out of order or not at all, and automated systems kept trying to tell him something different. But one thing was disturbingly clear about how easily the behemoth warship at the lead of the human formation had ploughed through the long-range fire of the entire fleet. Howe had continued to approach undeterred. The Grand Admiral spared a brief glance at the councillor, only to conclude that he too was beginning to come to a realization. The Admiral studied the display and glanced at Delcina's image before jerking a chin towards the two enemy fleet formations. Although key to focus on the Wurr'lea fleet. They are not panicking and I don't like a closing in on them. Intelligence says they think too much like us. Morillia were like a feline-like predator-evolved race. Their fleet had tightened its formation, despite whatever havoc Loki had been wreaking upon their senses and communication systems. They were disciplined, organized, and clearly capable of independent thought and knew the importance of drill, judging by how well they maintained order. And they were dropping back, moving to join a formation of the lone zillion hive ship— a massive craft that was a disturbing mix of organic and mechanical engineering. They were an insectoid species, reported to operate with a hive mind. Little better than cheap labor and disposable troops in the Council's eyes, they would surely have much to gain from a successful campaign against a young upstart race like humanity. And ask Convoom to focus his efforts on keeping the Wurr'lea from reaching the Hive ship. I want to keep the behemoth out of the fighting as long as possible. If possible, they'll surrender if we break up the rest of the council fleet before they get here. The massive semi-organic craft would be home to thousands of non-combatant families and workers, as much as a zelian bioform could be considered a non-combatant. They all lived for the betterment of their hive strain, but they were also capable of independent thought. They were fighting a war of ideals, and killing civilians would not help the human cause." Five minutes to primary engagement rage, ma'am. One of the Admiral's fleet staff piped up. She simply nodded as Athena turned her attention to communicating with Loki and Konvum. Order first and second destroyer groups to break contact and fall back to holding patterns. Carrier group to hold fast. All other sub formations are to assemble in the Georgius Averrof and advance to contact. All fighter wings advance in support of their assigned ships. The counsellor glared at the Grand Admiral's back before turning his attention back to the displays. The pitiful display of the Killian Consortium had come as no surprise to him. They would gladly sacrifice each other, as each ship was that much less competition to the endless economic war that they fought amongst themselves. That Grand Admiral had clearly been expecting more of them was a sign of how poorly he understood the Senate species. The last three Shadante ships were racing away from the main battle even as the human pursuers broke off to return to the main fleet, and the castler wrote them off in his mind. The tiny creatures were good for little more than food and fodder, and proven yet again by their own poor display. They had managed to destroy two human warships as little consolation. His gaze shifted again to the ignored communications technician and his assistants as they struggled to clear errors from the communications. They had resorted to outdated systems of stellar communication, using direct beam communication lasers to try and re-establish some coherency to the punitive fleet. They had done it without the direction of the Grand Admiral. They had done it on their own initiative. low cost barely functional, menial staff were demonstrating an ability to adapt to problem-solving, it brought to mind some serious questions on the lineage of the lead communications technician that the counselor would not waste his time finding answers for. He had people for that, and they would ensure that the relevant heads would roll for the travesty. The two fleets were closing. He understood little of the intricacies of naval combat, but some things were obvious. For one, the human behemoth warship should not be still advancing, It had been one of few clear sensor readings that they had received since the battle had begun. Multiple direct hits, dozens, and its shields had simply fled and held. He could tell from the taste of the air how unsettled the Grand Admiral and his crew were from that single display, and as such knew that it had to have some sort of trick, a sensor's error like those that continued to plague the fleet. One moment the Orillia fleet had begun advancing at full speed, and the next the sensors registered a debris field. The communications technician and his team scrambled, re-establishing communications, and the debris field reverted to a fleet of eleven warships, but their course had changed, moving towards the zillion hive ship. A disgusting species, used for little more beyond menial labor and disposable troops, they barely produced enough goods or mined resources to maintain their membership fees. They only stayed ahead of the Kidian Consortium's loan sharks and taxes through selling their own worker class into slave labor by the tens of thousands. A disgusting, hardly worthy race, but perhaps they would do better than the Shaldante, at least. The communications technician had let out a pathetic display of triumph before the Grand Admiral's census displayed fluttered and refreshed. The triumph was quickly squashed over, however, as the positions of the human fleet leapt far closer than the Grand Admiral had expected. The humans had accelerated without the Grand Admiral noticing. A sudden spike of fear threw the fleet as indicators of hundreds of those small crafts filled the void between the two fleets, and the silhouettes of the behemoth human ship was visibly changed. What had appeared as little more than a flat disk along the hull suddenly grew outwards, and was suddenly identified as a weapon system as their barrels extended from the armored turret rings. All fleets! Fire! Toes! And Fire! Grand Admiral all but screamed like a panicking female, taloned hands thrashing at his own controls as the human fleet's weapons began to flash with pulses of light. The Georgia Savaroff was the largest ship of the line the human navy had put to sail. The crew of 3,000, a full battalion of marines, seven dedicated wings of fighters, along its hull, three rows of three retractable turret rings, housing some of the most powerful weapons human science had produced to date. Each turret ring was powered by its own dedicated reactors, protected by layers of armor and energy shields. Captain Andrews sat calmly in the command seat, supervising as her crew executed the dance of organized chaos as target solutions were plotted. Telemetry data from the dedicated fighters and squadrons were tracked, and a myriad of systems were checked and checked again. Not only was it the first time that Georgius Aberrof brought its guns to bear on a hostile capital ships, but it was the first time that she went through battle operations without Athena looking over their shoulders. That... The powerful combat AI had entrusted what amounted to her own body to a human crew was a point of pride, and not something that they were interested in fouling up. Inform all gunnery officers to focus their fire on the Silowence fleet. Those old lizards are due for a rude awakening. Captain Andrew studied the Silowence fleet's formation, Most had forged ahead and had clearly realized just in time how close they were to the human fleet as the entire council fleet began to change course and power their own primary weapons. Four Silouin ships had hung back, likely the fleet commander's flagship and escort. Too far back for the Georgia Savarov to engage without powering up its main gun, which would have to require most of the power generation the ship was capable of not a weapon meant to be used while in the midst of a ship-to-ship action. Three dozen human warships closed to within weapons range of the Council's punitive fleet, and crossed the fleet weapon system surged with power before sending lances of light flashing across the void of space. In return, the punitive fleets returned fire, and across both fleets shields flashed and sparked. The Georgia Sarorov took the brunt of the opening salvo, the battleship's job was to take the hits, to draw the enemy's attention, to close with the enemy and tear and bite and claw its way through. And every hit the George's off shields was one less shot at a less armored and protected ships of the fleet. One less salvo that the fleet needed to try and outmaneuver, allowing them to hold formation. A few more seconds that they needed to focus their own fire on easier targets and start to whittle the larger punitive force down. Captain Andrews smiled as the Georgia's avrof shields flashed and reports came in. No spot failures, no failed systems, no damage. At her nod, the main guns fired, flashing with the light of suns, and two Silouan ships vanished into a cloud of rapidly cooling debris. The third listing hard and dropping out of formation with the rest of the Silouan's fleet detonations and flashes of light in the void on the system's edge. Three dozen human warships were cutting a swath through the punitive force, giving far more than they got. It became clear far too fast that the difference in military sciences and technology between the young upstarts and the millennia-old siluans was almost insurmountable. Even without being hampered by spotty sensors and intermittent communications failures, the punitive fleet couldn't have offered a coordinated resistance. There were eight separate fleets, each smaller than the combined human fleet, each with their own motivations and tactics, each with their own strengths and weaknesses. The human fleet was a sole entity, a single coordinated monster of a thousand arms and eyes. Gathering party leader Forense visibly shook with an odd mixture of rage and loss. Most of his clan was dead. Generations of cousins and brothers and sisters consigned to the cold void of space. Many hadn't even known when death had come for them, so sudden had it been. The humans had torn them apart, shredded Chaldente ships, and had been lovingly scavenged over dozens of generations. Each piece of every ship had a story of its origin. For all was lost, he wept. The clan would never recover, Their sacrifice would go unnoticed to the Silowin's counsellor, whom had joined the punitive force. They had drawn first blood. His father's sacrifice had been the first human loss of the battle, and it would go ignored. His cousin's guns had brought down one of their impossibly far ships in the first assault, and it would go unaccounted. The Grand Admiral had declared his displeasure, had labelled his clan a coward and failure. The Chaldante had held its Senate seat by a mere hair's width for decades, and that tenuous hold was surely lost. For that, he raged. Both had his own failures and the cold disdain for the Grand Admiral and his counsellor. Three ships remained of the dozens that had both made up his clan, They had not been amongst the strongest of the Xaltante clan fleets, but they had taken the risk for their people. A good showing in front of the Siloans would have earned them respect, political allies, wealth, stronger position on the Senate, protection from the Killian Consortium's fees and dealings, and a poor showing would simply tear away what little they had. See them thrown to the mud, stomped upon and forgotten, "'used as little more than the commodities they trade goods. "'Cousins! Our clan is dead, but it shall not be forgotten. "'Come about and make haste. We've drawn human blood, and we'll do so again, by any means necessary.' "'They might fail. The counsellors likely wouldn't even notice their pending sacrifice. "'But at least he and his own would not know the result of their evident failure.' and what would come of the Sheldante in the wake of the death of his clan. Three ramshackle Sheldante scavenged ships changed course, returning to the fray as the human council-led fleet's exchange blows. Death was certain, but it was better than what they would face if the war was over. The humans enslaved, the council free to turn its attention to those that had failed them. Three Senate race fleets converged with the Silhouans against the brunt of the human fleet. They arrived in staggered intervals as their own technicians and crews fought and struggled with a constant stream of errors, lag, and conflicting reports in their communications and census systems. In raw tonnage, they outclassed the humans. In cohesion and tactics, even had Loki not been ripping through their systems, leaving them half-blind and deaf to each other the punitive fleet would not have found a fair fight. Guided by four separate combat AIs, crewed by thousands of wild, drooled, and disciplined crews, captained by experienced officers capable of independent thought, and supported by a dedicated staff, the human fleet was deadly. The Talhas saucer, the large disc-shaped ship that was the disturbingly eel-like aliens, if Eels had half a dozen legs and four primary manipulators, landed on the punitive fleet's second tidy victory. It was never entirely certain if the maneuver was intentional or the result of the constant barrage of sensor ghosts Loki wrought, but the massive vessel bobbed and weaved through the squadron of Hermes fighters. It came up into the path of the human cruiser too late for either crew to adjust. Even Athena was unable to predict or warn of the pending collision, Considering speeds at which both fleets were moving, despite more powerful shielding and heavily reinforced superstructure, the cruiser was shattered by the impact, then further torn asunder by the Talhas saucer detonated. A crippled Suluans warship was next, perhaps already blinded and rudderless. It ploughed on into the human formation to collide with the second cruiser. The two ships' hulls were deeply gouged and their shields failed and armor was sheared away. Partially fused by the impact, they tore apart into rapidly widening fields of debris. The human formation executed a series of sharp maneuvers, changing course to keep the council fleet in range. They moved as a single entity, while the various species of the punitive force fought small clusters of individual ships, hammering away at the nearest target rather than focusing their efforts. Admiral, the Chardante have changed course and are returning to the engagement area. Athena spoke softly as much for her attention as was coordinating the squadrons of fighter craft that were harassing the punitive fleet, while also liaising with the other combat AIs of the fleet. The admiral turned her attention to the large holographic display and the three contact markers of the remaining Chaldante ships. They were racing through the debris fields where they had met the first destroyer group, plunging straight towards the heart of the battle. Straight! towards the Georgia Averoff, It was almost painful to watch, more so when she pulled up their communications logs, copied and forwarded by the many viruses Loki had seeded throughout the council fleet. Their reasoning was laid bare in the surviving captain's brief statement. They didn't fight for loyalty to the cause, no duty or oath to the council. They fought so their children might not be slaves or food for more powerful races. They fought... So that the people might not be made property, not be cast out from the Senate. They would throw themselves and the ships just so that they would not survive to see the horrors that the council would put the Shaldante through after the battle was over. Ask Loki to start compiling every communication like this amongst the council fleet. Every time one of these ships voices dissent or displeasure with their peoples lightened the Senate, Every curse aimed at the council races, the propaganda department will want it later. She was silent for a moment as Athena saw to the request. Athena scrambled rescue ships into the Shaldante wrecks and asked their surviving ships to quit the battle while they still can, give them a chance to save themselves. It was all that she could offer. It was up to the races like the Shaldante to cast aside their own chains, to want a better way for themselves to cast aside everything that they'd been taught of how the universe had to work, and see that there was a better way out there. Because if races like the Shaldante didn't, then humanity would just be seen as invaders, an enemy, and an entire war would be for nothing. The change had to start from within. Her gaze shifted again, as the status icon of another of her destroyers flashed, and turned red and then a dull grey. Another ship lost. No escape pods launched. No time for the crew to have reached them. Upwards of a third of the fleet was gone, and the humans were still pressing the assault. It was a guess, at least, but how many of the Senate member race fleet ships had been lost. Of the Silouan's fleet itself, three, maybe four ships had been destroyed or too badly damaged to continue the battle. And even that was more a guess than certainty." His sensors operator had resorted to visual data, forgetting the ship's advanced sensors and communications networks was something that, while painfully time-delayed, would at least allow an accurate view of what was happening in the battle minutes or hours prior. The information still showed the Shaldante fleeing, the Killiant Consortium charging boldly against the human warships and hounded them and the Warrelia fleet changing course to engage the swift but unshielded warships that had first torn through the Shaldente. By the ancestors, it still showed that a bulk of the main fleet was only just coming into weapons range of the humans, showed, in fact, that the advanced edge of the Siluans' formation was entering range, while the Talhas were still minutes or hours behind. They were all much further apart than he had thought, based off of what he had been able to glean from the senses." It was infuriating, trying to command the largest fleet of the council had ever fielded in centuries, only to be plagued by constant technical failures. A result of trying to combine the tactical information of such a lesser species. His sensors operator and technician assured him, the result of the human interference his communications technician worried, the result of his own personal competence, the councillor surely believed. Not only was his reputation on the line, what so was his life, the lives of his entire lineage? He suspected. The counselor was not known for being lenient or forgiving, and his anger could be far-reaching. The Zillian tribe is to make all speed towards the main engagement. Leave those human skirmishers to the Worillia. When they are done, they are to advance to enter the main engagement from between the two human formations. Talhas are to shield our advance formation. The remainder are to inflict all possible damage upon the human ships. We break them here. Bold words, bold orders, and a bold hope that at least some of those orders would reach the right formations. Stop! Next target! The crippled Tellhouse Saucer spiraled past the Destined and Captain Alberston flashed a grim smile and tumbled away. It was too badly damaged to fight and could barely maneuver. No longer a viable target, no longer a threat. So it was time to find a fresh prey. Maybe the crew would abandon ship or struggle to stabilize the systems and try to navigate clear of the battle area. But without weapons, they were out of the fight, and he had no interest in slaughtering the defenseless ship and its crew. Shield spot failure starboard, transferring reserve power, 703rd Squadron is breaking contact, returning to Hermes to refuel and rearm. Seven hundred fifth is no longer combat effective and returned to Hermes. 701st, 2nd, and 4th are remaining in contact and are reforming on our lead. The crewman at the secondary tactical station, dubbed the Tower, by the five squadrons of the strike craft assigned to the Destined, delivered his report before returning to the task of tracking and watching over them. Target locked. The Founder just did a run along the Sulean's vessel and chased it into our heading. Engines and primary weapons are down permission to engage. Primary tactical in charge of weapons and targeting already knew what the answer to fire order request would be. Fire it well, tactical. Nav, bring us alongside. A nod from the navigation station and the Destin leapt ahead to gain the staggering silhouette warship. The main guns flashed once, twice, and the far older alien warship's shields flashed and shattered. A pair of ragged gougers burned into the armored hull. Talhas on collision course, starboard low. Sensors piped up suddenly, and navigation responded quickly. The Destined rolled aft over the damaged silhouette ship and away from the Talhas saucer that passed through the space that the Destined had previously occupied. The crew were rattled, despite the inertial dampeners and gravity control systems, but crash harnesses held them in their seats, and their environmental suits included G-suit components to prevent blackout from such sudden and violent course corrections. Captain Anderson glanced at the tactical display, nodding in approval at his quick and independent actions of his crew, grinning with pride. Well done, Salvo into those lizards, then bring us around on that. Before he could finish, his tactical display showed the same Talha saucer crashing into the Founder, the Destin's sister ship, and one last cruiser in the formation. The disc-shaped vessel, forward ledge, vanished and contacted with the Founder's powerful shields, but then the energy barrier gave way and the two ships impacted. Armored howls gave way, great gouts of energy tore across the Tullhasa ship's hull and scoured the founder. The two ships further ground into each other, great clouds of debris cast off either ship, before the massive disks' engines fled brightly and detonated. God damn it! The battle was quickly entering a new phase that he didn't want to contemplate. Hello, gathering party leader, Ferenza. An unfamiliar voice without any regional accent that he could identify chirped through the bridge of the scavenger ship. Ferenza glanced at the nearest crew member, one of his sons, who shared a glance before looking towards the monitor of the Ferenza's side. An unfamiliar face appeared on the screen. As with any race, many of the Senate species felt that the humans all looked the same. It certainly didn't help that few had seen more than one or two as they were exceedingly rare in the council space even before the war had been declared. The Chaldante could at least appreciate that they were indeed individuals, although they had never seen that face before. Pale flesh, slim facial features, dark hair on its head and above its dangerous eyes. How a human could be speaking to him in perfect Chaldantean common was perhaps a question for another day. Who are you? The human smiled, a tooth-bearing curl of the lips, and the Sheldante shuddered involuntarily at the display. I am Loki. I'm a combat AI of the Hermes supercarrier, and the one that has been spending the last few hours running amok across all the ships of the Purgatory Fleet. That smile was entirely too amused as the commission to comfort for race, and his hair prickled in response tiny barbs rose in the hair and the neck and shoulders, meaning to ward off these people's ancient predators, and mostly useless evolutionary trait that his people had yet to fully cast off, and an embarrassingly easy to observe sign of fear and discomfort of his people. I've come to offer you a chance to stand down. The Admiral, my Admiral, has scrambled rescue ships to the wreckage of your clan ships, The exact translation of the wording implied that Loki was aware of the Ferenc's choice would be, was aware of what surrender would mean for his people, aware of what his duty would require of the Sheldante leader. He was silent for a moment, as his three ships, full of family both close and distantly related, charged into the fray. They flew in the column, the ship of his two eldest sons leading them to the fray and the rear. They would shield him with their bodies, so he might have a chance to strike and win his people at least some merit in the eyes of the Suluans' counselor. He glanced at the sensor display, and Loki followed his gaze before smirking and nodding his head towards it. The display changed drastically from the confusing mess of coordinations and ghosts to a new image, a true display of the battle, of dozens of senate and member race ships shattered and dead of Siloan's warships limping towards the system's far edge, intent of fleeing back to safer systems, of dozens of tiny craft racing from what Loki had named the Hermes towards the remnants of not only his clanmate ships, but the wreckage of the Kidian consortium and the other species ships that were far enough from the bulk of the fighting for a safe to reach, rescue operations even as the battle raged. The humans would seek to rescue the enemies before even knowing if they could win the battle. To take prisoners, perhaps. To gain information. To learn how the fleet... But no. They had no need to. Loki was an artificial intelligence, one powerful enough to wreak havoc throughout the entire fleet from the moment the battle had begun. They had no need for prisoners. Why? Why save them? Loki smiled sadly. And, offered a shrug, he was named after a god of mischief and trickery, but wasn't a cold-hearted and self-absorbed deity of his namesake. Because someone has to. They don't want war, but change is a painful thing, and sometimes force is required to make it, even when it's the right thing to do. So, they will show you the truth and their intentions through their actions. Do you and your crews have any messages for your clanmates gathering party leader Forenza? I will deliver it for you when this battle is over. Ferenza was silent for a moment, glancing at the nearest sun, then towards the display of the battle. He could not surrender, despite the fact that they wanted to trust the humans through the demeanor of their AI. If he did, his people would suffer long and hard under Siloan's rage. Change was slow to come. It was true. Slower still, when generation after generation of a hundred races had been taught time and time again that the way things was simply the way they had to be. That there could be no better way. That the only chance for another better was over the corpses of those you cheated and killed to best. That, uh, I'm sorry, and that I do this for our people. That the clan lives on with them. His barbs lowered the weight lifted from his chest. Aboard the three Shaldante ships, similar messages were offered, final words to loved ones that may or may not yet live. Perhaps he shouldn't have believed Loki. It could have been all lies. Perhaps they would pick up the survivors from the Shaldante wrecks, but how would those survivors be treated? Slaves? Prisoners, certainly. Perhaps better than the rest of the species would be treated by the council races or the Senate species once their membership was revoked for failure. Perhaps not. But they had chosen to speak to him, offered him and out, despite knowing that he would not, could not accept it. What did they have to gain from doing so? The three Chaldante ships made their way best be towards the humans' battleship, intent on their course in racing to deliver a blow that would offer their people some respect in the counselor's eyes. The survivors of his clan might be safe in the hands of the humans, but his people were still under the claws of the Siloans and the other council races. And it was the only way he could hope to protect them all. For a time, at least. End of Part 2 The First Battle, Part 3 The Admiral was pale as updates from the main battle kept coming forward. It had been so one-sided at first Dozens of council and senate ships crippled or destroyed. Her fleet's guns were bigger, shields stronger, armor thicker. Her crew and captains were better. They held the edge on every front but one. Humanity did not want war of guns and bombs, of violence and destruction. They sought to cripple or disable the enemy ships, drive them or force them to surrender. They weren't afraid to kill. Humanity had always been good at that. They didn't want to. They would if they had to. But the Senate species fought for their own people in a way that humanity did not. They fought for their children, for their future generations, for themselves, striving to eke out a better future in a system that benefited only a select few. They fought knowing that to fail would mean disaster for their people, that to retreat would mean loss of political power, the defaulting of the financial debts to surrender was seen as weakness, a lack of worth to the council species, a death sentence to their people. So they fought with everything they had as their ships died and were torn apart by the human guns, as their systems failed and betrayed them. They co opted the human AIs, they fought and died, fueling by the rage and fear of what would come to their families, their species and fueled by their fear that devotion to everything that held dear and the hope of a better future that could not include them. They sacrificed themselves. Each ship that threw themselves in the path of a human vessel, each that came about to shield the Siluan's warship with their own lives. Every time it happened, the Admiral watched crews that willingly killed themselves to protect their loved ones. Good people, aliens though they may be, with simply universal motivations. Motivations, reasoning, desires that weren't so different from a human. They just needed to know that there was a better option. A better way. Of course, there was also far more personal pain each time one of those senate races or a member specieship sacrificed itself. More of her own people died. Fathers and mothers, sons and daughters Each ship lost meant so many families destroyed. Admiral to the fleet, Hermes and support ships are beginning to launch rescue teams. First and second destroyer groups are to move to engage hostile reserve formation. Convoom is to draw the Wurulia battle group back towards the main engagement zone and into the first and second routes advance. Keep that zillion hive back. She studied the tactical displays as her staff assembled them, drawing light onto each phase of the area of battle throughout the system, painting a single unified picture for her to interpret. The Zidian timeship was one of the largest spacefaring crafts that she had ever seen. It was slow, impossible to maneuver, and had little by means of major anti-capital weaponry, but it was heavily armored and could take a hell of a beating. She had no interest in dealing with it in combat, better to force them to surrender or flee. Taking it down into combat would tie up too many resources from the rest of the fleet, which was already laboring to deal with the combat losses at an increasingly suicidal enemy. Through Loki, she already knew that the Grand Admiral was encouraging the ramming tactic, gladly throwing the way of the lives of the ships of his own allies to protect the Siloan's fleet. His own ship, and the mission as a whole. They believed their fleet to be the only one humanity could possibly have fielded, that fifty ships under her command was everything humanity could throw at them, that if they were broken here, their war would all but be over. He wasn't entirely wrong. She commanded a bulk of the fleet, but more ships were being built, launched, crewed. Just as the Council and the Senate would be pushing more warship projects forward, seeking to field yet more craft. It would be a long war indeed. The Convoom Combat AI relied on the dedicated drone warships that shared his intelligence across their systems. The more hounds in his control, the more powerful his program, his mind became. He had never before held so many hounds at one time, and the result was that a level of processing power revealed itself as advanced electronic warfare capabilities and reaction speed of enemy action. He rode a dozen hounds through the Sheldande fleet. The drones were unshielded, lightly armored, relying entirely on maneuverability and speed to avoid the enemy. He had lost one in his passage through the Sheldande fleet, and mourned it silently as he followed Athena's directions to continue after new targets. Each hound, although smaller than a destroyer, was far faster than just was well-armed. this sensor silhouette was tiny, easily missed, When they were nearly upon the Worulia feet before the feline-like alien spotted him and brought their eleven strong feet around to meet Konvoom's eleven hounds head-on. If he could feel exhilaration, he would have. The shelladante had done well to strike one of the hounds. They had been taken by surprise. Yet, had still put up a good fight, but there had never been much of a challenge to it. Convum had known the outcome before the battle had begun. His hounds against the Warillia fleet was far more interesting engagement. Some part of him found it amusing. The humans called the ship's hounds, while they considered the Warillians to be feline-like in appearance. The similarities were superficial at best, but so too were those of the hounds to dogs. He would not have been surprised if it had all been Loki's doing, arranging the fleet arrangements and movements of the punitive fleet contingencies to try and urge Wurulia into this path. Wurulia were predator-evolved species, they were built for the chase, and so as the two fleets neared, they began to alter their course, meaning that the lead convoms into charging their flanks and the brunt of their combined fire before giving chase as the Hounds would surely pass through their ranks and continue on. Instead, Convoom's own fleet charged ahead as it was about to do exactly as the Warillians wanted, but just as they came upon the enemy's weapon range, the Hounds split into two separate formations, charging either end of the Warillians' battle line. They were forced to make minor adjustments at the last moment, firing into what they tracked as the Hounds' course only for convoom ships to make a sudden last-minute course correction and charge into the center of the Warrillian line instead. Shots flew wide, weapons and gunnery crews struggled to track the last-second course changes, equally struggling to understand how any living crew could have survived such dramatic changes in course over such a short time. A few shots found their mark, gouging rents into the armor of the lead hounds, and the hounds returned fire at point-blank. Wurrillion's shield spread and failed. Hulls were pumped with high-speed kinetic weapons. Their armor dumpled and shredded as the high-speed projectiles pierced the hull, only to begin shedding through the softer interior systems. They didn't have the same opinion of how heavily reinforced interior structure of a warship needed to be, and one kilogram of tungsten steel spheres flashed through the ship's interior, shredding systems and crew alike. Those that survived were faced with an explosive decompression of interior compartments. Lancers of energy weapons fire melted and sliced through the already shielded vessels. In their first pass, the Hound took three Wurulia craft. The Wurulia struggled to bring their ships about to give chase, weapons again pivoting in their turrets and regaining finding solutions at the human AI ships. They were met by the slights of those very same vessels breaking and coming about in a perfect symmetry readying for another, albeit slower, run against the Warillia battle line. Elements of the punitive force broke through the main line of the battle and made full speed towards the homies and her escorts. Many were already damaged, but seeing the opening in the human formations, they had surged forward, intent on trying to take out the human support vessel and earn themselves some credit in the eyes of the council races. The opportunity was quickly taken from them, though as the first and second destroyer groups were made their own advance into the obvious maneuver to reach the Silowin's flagship and its own escorts. Knowing a counselor was aboard the flagship, those vessels had been bound to the Hermes broke off from their own advance, heading instead after the destroyer groups. Through it all, the Admiral and Athena worked tirelessly to coordinate the fleet and its myriad parts, her staff were constantly compiling and updating data on the Hermes' many deployed quadrants. Ammunition stalls, damage reports, fuel, debris trajectories. Athena's attention was split between the information Loki constantly provided of plotted hostile movements and targeting systems, pushing forward tactical suggestions on observations to the Admiral's staff, and plotting their own side of the battle with her fellow air-eyes. The Myriad individual fleets that had made up the Punitive fleet simply could not keep up with the human's ability to adapt and adjust their formations and tactics. At that revelation dawned on them that the battle was lost before it had ever begun. The desperation began to reveal itself in the form of suicidal charges and deadly collisions. The member races knew the battle was lost, and knew what would happen if they did not make a good showing of themselves. And the only way to do that was to die fighting the Siloans, of course, had another option. Damaged Siloans' ships fled from battle, scrambling back towards the command ship to take up a defensive station around the Counselor. Not the Grand Admiral. They too knew that it was a stake they should fail, and letting the Counselor die was a death sentence for their own genetic lines. However, they also knew that the Counselor would flee long before he was in direct risk, and that they could flee with him, protecting him from the enemy. The battle raged for hours. First and second destroyer groups joined the fray, leading their tails back into the heart of battle, where the Georgia Savarov's guns began to make short work of them. Three Chalandente ships entered the fray, making straight for the powerful battleship. The lead vessel was struck and shattered by a barrage of torpedoes. The remaining two made good showing of themselves. Their shields sparked and spot failure as they passed through debris fields or through firing arcs, but they surged onward, Small and agile despite their piecemeal construction, the Sholodente vessels danced through the battle, closing in on the Georgia Seborov through a field of debris and shattered wreckage of the Siloan's vessel. They flashed into an opening, a final suicide dash akin to a cavalry against a ready line of pikemen. The second ship vanished into a field of expanding debris as two of the Georgius Averrof's main turrets brought it into their sights. The third leapt through, shields shattering as the hull fatally charred. It crashed into the Georgius Averrof's shields, engines detonating on impact. A bright flash of light and a hole was torn in the battleship's defensive shields. The debris from the second craft tumbled through, crashing against the battleship's hull, flashes of heat from the kinetic impacts. The massive ship wasn't even visibly rocked by the impacts. Its shields slowly reformed over the hull of the Shaladenta had punched into them, the main guns calmly resuming tracking new targets. Convoom's hounds dueled with the Ruralia, both fleets dancing around each other in ever-tightening dance. Each AI's vessel's destroyed lessened its ability to see and predict the movements, each war ship lost meant a new hole in their formation, a new weakness for the AI to exploit. Three hounds remained when the last two Wurilia ships fled, a first for their people. Damaged, barely able to limp away, they fell in around the massive Zidian hive ship, not yet aware that it had already accepted Loki's option to surrender. It had just entered weapons range and the brunt of the punitive force was destroyed. Aboard the flagship with less than a half of the Siloen's fleet holding station around it and most damaged, the counselor stood over the dying body of the Grand Admiral, his claws dripping with blood and screaming in rage at the crew that had so failed the Siloan's race. Failed the council. Failed him. Ignored by most, the communications technician had also been killed, The thought that a low caste worker had been the only one of the crew that had understood what had gone wrong, working independently to fix the problem, was too insulting to let pass uncorrected. The silhouette's fleet fled, and the admiral let them. Her fleet had numbered fifty cruise ships when the battle had begun. Convum had lost nine of his hounds, each ship taken years to build, and would be hard to replace. But the battle had grown desperate, the suicide runs of the lesser races, and the Senate had taken a heavy toll. Dozens of ships had been lost, and most of that had been remained was badly damaged. She had lost thousands of skilled crew, an irreplaceable resource. Ships could be rebuilt, but experienced crew, friends, and family, they could never be replaced the willingness of those aliens to throw themselves on the human guns, to kill themselves in desperate acts to cripple or destroy the human warships. Had it shown her a glimpse of war to come? A long, brutal and bloody war. Coming alongside now, sir, we've detected Atmo in three areas. It's cold in there, but thermals are detecting heat signatures. A few dozen survivors, maybe. The shuttle flight engineer stood in the hatchway between the crew area and the main compartment of the rescue shuttle. A dozen men and women were seeding their helmets and slinging gear, and the team leader offered a confirmatory thumbs up before finishing seeding his helmet and activating his intercom. Roger that. Three teams. Thumbs. Kettle. He indicated two members of the rescue team, senior and experienced hands, and they responded in turn. Nicknames, of course. Thumbs, because he only had one real one, and poster boy from the early days of the Don't Put Your Fingers Where You Wouldn't Put Your, um <coughs> Lesson. Cattle, because she was a large Congolese woman named Potter, and she liked tea, which had only come out after she'd received the name. The rescue team formed up and a flight engineer sealed off the chamber before depressurizing. Moments later, the twelve were leaving the relative safety of the shuttle's hold, entering a hazardous realm of tumbling debris fields around the wreckage of the Sheldante vessel. They made their way into the ship easily enough, in had torn open weapons fire. The ship hazardly formed hull was pockmarked with dozens of direct hits, and it was some sort of miracle that there could be anyone left alive on board. Three other shuttles Little more than Tugs had carefully latched onto the debris and managed to slow the uncontrolled tumble through space. They were still working to slow it to a stop, and once done it would immediately be off towards the next wreckage and the next waiting rescue teams. Apparently, the Charles Dante had learned long ago how dangerously fragile or prone to structural failure their scavenged ships could be, and many of the main rooms doubled as lifeboats. The team split up and entered the ship, Kettle leading hers away along the ship's hull towards another tear that was closer to their destination. Thumbs took his team down to a separate corridor, its length sickeningly twisted as the ship's hull corkscrewed and twisted during the battle, and exposed it to the void of space in some areas. And Stone led his own towards the nearest of the three lifeboats. He'd earned his nickname because he was known to be deadpan and steady letting everything in life throw at him, wash over him like a stone in a river. Of course, stones and water tended to get worn down over time, no matter how sturdy they seemed. As they moved along, he carefully moved the shredded, charred body of the Sheldantian out of their path. The things were barely half his sight, and the only reason the halls were large enough for him and his team to move through was because the ship was salvaged, not custom-built. He spent a moment to study its face before gently pushing it away and into the void through another large hole in the bulkhead pressing on. They reached the sealed door, a single flashing green light above it. The team worked quickly without any guidance from Stone. Two worked on the lining of the surviving bulkheads and the other side of the door with a cable, then attached a tar black membrane that quickly sealed off the airtight space beside the door of the lifeboat. The cables were then attached to the power source and charged, and the membrane suddenly hardened as strong as steel. The third crew member then activated a pack that she'd been carrying through the wrecked ship and filled the newly formed chamber with atmosphere hospitable to the charlandante in the room beyond. The green light above the door suddenly flashed orange, the sensor detecting atmosphere and unlocking automatically. The four humans magnetized their boots and knee pads, Each dropped to their knees, hands held out in front of their bodies, and after a glance between Stone and one of the team members, who was visibly nervous about what was about to happen, they opened the door. Inside, a dozen Sheldante survivors went from hopeful to terrified as they realized their rescuers weren't fellow clanmates. Many were visibly wounded, but two still surged forward wielding makeshift weapons, tools or piping stone, wasn't sure. But clubs, certainly. He raised his hand slightly higher, then bobbed his head twice towards the two, before speaking through the suit's loudspeaker and translation software. We come for clan and comrades. The two club wielding adults stopped. Fresh atmosphere was being pumped into the room, breathable to the Shalendante within. Most wore environmental suits, but they hadn't yet donned their helmets, relying on the lifeboat's room's air supply first before turning to the personal tanks. The air in the room had been getting thin, and those that had no suits to fall back on were clearly relieved at the rush of fresh air. The group of Chaldante shared glances, stone-watched, his HUD littered with updates on body language markers. They were nervous, understandably so, angry and afraid. I offer honesty and truth. Your clan still fights. Three ships race to the punitive fleet's aid. They do this knowing the effort will fail, the battle lost. They do this knowing that we will not spare them, and that they will die. The group turned to gaze at Stone as he spoke. The subtleties of the translation were immense. Too much for Stone alone to be able to fully impress upon the gathered Sheldante." Loki had prepared a speech, and it was almost comical at how his HUD showed him images of himself in various poses or stances, meant to mimic Sheldante body language and help impart the exact meaning of the words. Language was a very complicated thing, after all. They pressed the attack, so the rest may live. Stone had been briefed on what exactly he was trying to impart to the Shaltante survivors, and he should only hope Loki had gotten it right, or that he hadn't screwed up the gestures and inflections. There was a pause in the crowd, and then they all lowered themselves to their knees, much as the human rescuers had been when the door had first opened. A gesture not entirely of surrender, but acceptance of the situation as well. Stone was gaining a new appreciation for the eggheads that studied linguistics and xenopsychology before the war. Breaking entire civilizations of cultural shackles they had been raised into wouldn't succeed through violence alone. Humanity had the edge on that, and was being demonstrated in the battle elsewhere in the system. But one species could hardly stand against dozens. Not for long. It had never been meant to be a war of guns and bombs. Stone waved his team to enter the room, and they quickly began working on the survivors to prepare them for extraction from the wrecked ship. Kettle and thumb signaled that they had a similar success. Survival bags were pulled from the pouches, and those Chaldante without suits were coaxed into them, zipped up tight with their seals were triple-checked, as those were in environmental suits, and then each erected barriers were dropped and the atmosphere was vented, and a few dozen exhausted Chaldante survivors, enemies of humanity due to the politics and social bindings of the council and senate, were led to the waiting shuttle, to be whisked away to the Hermes and her support staff. They would receive medical treatment, food, and rest, Humane treatment as befitted prisoners of war, taken on good terms. it had never been meant to be a war of violence. It was a war of ideas. And humanity's ideas offered one thing few under the council species heels could have ever imagined. They offered hope. End of the First Battle Part 3 Because someone had to, Part 3 The Kiltan's child's carapace rattled as plates flexed and crackled together nervously. Even the children knew that the humans had lost in the war. Its mandibles clacked and an uncertain hiss followed, as the child struggled to understand how word its question. So the teacher, taking the class's attention away from the shaken Kiltan child, children were mean, even alien children. The humans didn't fight just to the ships and guns. Their most dangerous weapon to the Council was words. Freedom, equality, rights. Ideas are much harder to fight. None of the Council could have imagined that the war with the Terrans would last so long. Fleets had been shattered in the voids of space. Worlds had burned under the fire of the Senate species' guns. The horror of biological warfare. The devastation of nuclear fire but always felt on distant, once-human worlds as the Terrans were pushed back, demanding blood for every foot that they lost. After ten years, the protests and riots had begun amongst the Senate worlds. Civilians and slaves crying out against the war. Higher taxes, forced conscription, rationing. Smuggling became rampant. The very pirates the Council patrol ships had once hunted had been left unchecked as the patrol fleets were drawn into the conflict. And with the rise of black market and smuggling rings, the Terrans' war opened onto a new front. Council propaganda spoke of grand victories and ever nearing the end of the war. The arrogant humans were surrendering by the millions, entire planets throwing off the yoke of the oppressive government to submit to the rightful place at the feet of the council and the senate. The humans smuggled in unfiltered footage of the battles that were raged on field hospitals where humans and center crews were tended, combat reporters interviewing defectors and rebels that had joined the human cause for freedom in the galaxy. It was propaganda in its own right, but its impact grew with every passing month. Every loved one conscripted to the cause, every missed meal or confiscated convenience taken to the war effort and never seen again. Except, occasionally, on the pirate-smuggled videos from the humans, someone lost a loved one would see the their human camp healthy and well-fed. Comprehensive lists of names and fates of PLWs, a fleeting glimpse of missing loved ones in human prison camps receiving medical treatment, allowances for religious and cultural requests. And as the protests escalated, the humans and their growing list of allies were smuggled into council space. They embedded into the local scene and began instructing civilians on how to be heard by their leaders, and when the executions of the most outspoken began, how to fight back. The first true rebellions began 20 years into the conflict, with the assassination of Sector Administrator and his aides. In what proved later to be a fatal mistake, the Council launched a kinetic bombardment of the capital where the assassination took place. Millions of civilians were killed in bid to cow the growing unrest. It failed. The captain sat in a large chamber, and the cave system-turned-headquarters of the Fioruta Rebellion. The planet Fioruta Prime was an anchor wall of one of the council's largest dedicated military shipyards. Even in the green-tinted light of day, the massive orbital shipyards could be seen around the palace rocky moon overhead." There were only 20 humans on the planet, special forces operatives embedded to assist the local rebel movement, in an entirely advisory role. It was up to the people of Fioruta to strive for their own freedoms and equality, the entire human strategy for grassroots and populist movements that belonged to the people it sought to free. The war was into the 24th year. Hundreds of center planets were torn apart by rebellion Senate warships had gone rogue, some falling to piracy and others to raising the flag of rebellion, but the Council's war against the humans continued to progress, with the colonies of Alpha Century and the shipyards of Bernard Starr having fallen to their fleets. Humanity had held the advantage of quality, the crews were both better trained and dedicated to the cause, their leaders more adaptable and inventive. Human military and technical sciences had far outstripped the Council and Senate races even before the conflict had begun, and had only continued to advance. But they were only one people, a handful of planets compared to what was held under the Council's talons, which had held the advantage of quantity. He was tasked to advise the Fioruta rebellion, small teams were seated around the planet, working diligently to train rebel fighters offering a wealth of experience to their planning sessions and helping guide the propaganda campaign on the planet. But at the end of the day, the fight was led by the people of Fioruta, and was the case for a hundred planets across the Council space. In the adjacent chamber, a captured military shuttle had been prepped, and the rebels had worked hard to prepare for what was to come. A daring raid on the lunar shipyards, a strike to cripple the manufacturing capabilities... A flotilla of pirate raiders waited for the system's inner asteroid belt, ready to unleash an ancient human weapon on the shipyards. Once, the rebel team had crippled its central computer and defensive capabilities. Fire ships. A dozen old cargo ships stripped of all necessary systems to make room for explosives and thousands of tons of stone. Engines and power plants overclocked and prowls covered with thick slabs of crude armor. As the rebel team readied the board through, they were stopped. The captain could see what transpired when he sat and watched the uncharacteristic focus. Screens around the command center were displaying a record council broadcast. They had become increasingly common over the years, especially following anything that could be spun as a victory against the Terran military. It was the third time it played that day. Every three hours, every linked monitor on every planet in the Council space surely showed the same thing. He hadn't spoken much since the first time he had aired. He hadn't moved from where he sat, simply watching the message. His sergeant had been the first to shake it off. A smile, a half-hearted comment about propaganda and doctored footage, but like the other two soldiers under his command, something was gone from the sergeant's eyes. He had smiled and clapped the local rebel leaders on the shoulders, urging them back to work. He had gathered the other two humans in the bunker and had spoken with them. And the captain had sat there, watching the video. The sergeant had spoken to him next, a simple request. He barely heard what the man had asked, but it couldn't have been anything else. Deployment orders. The sergeant had understood, of course, the captain couldn't go. The rebel command still needed him, after all, and he was a good man, and would do his duty. He had to do his children proud, so he could face them one day when his head held high. And the captain had nodded, and the sergeant had departed. The two young soldiers in his wake. None had looked back at those monitors, and had simply prepared for the mission. At the shuttle, a Kiltan soldier was stopped by the sergeant, who slapped the large insectoid ex-slave on his thick carapace shoulder. All what passed to the best human conception. He spoke to the rebel team, and two others had slowly stepped out of the line to make room for the two human soldiers. The sergeant spoke to the group and handed something to the Kiltan. And then they boarded the shuttle. The ramp closed, the engine spooled up, and it was gone. The captain watched it go, watched the rebel soldiers approach, the kilton carrying an odd green object with one of its primary manipulators. He watched everything but the monitors, as the council message replayed. The kiltan came to the captain's secondary manipulator, scratching the carapace underbelly uncertainly. Before, it held out an odd object for the captain to see. An ancient style of military flashlight, a simple battery-operated plastic thing, the illuminator jotting out of the body at a right angle. The Kiltan spoke in a series of clicks and subdued squeals, which were processed and translated by the captain's earpiece. Captain, what is this? A flashlight soldier, the sergeant calls them tortures. Why did he give me this? Kiltan can see in the dark, sir. The captain was quiet for a moment, his mind slowly clawing its way out from the precipice. Why had the sergeant given up his flashlight to the Kiltan soldier? And then it clicked. The captain's gaze snapped towards where the shuttle had sat, and he couldn't help but smile. If only for a moment. Passing the torch, the hat, On the monitors, Asia Minor could be seen from orbit. Flashes of light and black smudges of smoke marred the horizon line between day and night. Senate ships sat high in orbit, raining fire onto the birth world of humanity. Councillor. We are receiving incident reports from seven sector administrators. The siluance counselor looked up from his meal, a sharp fang snout smeared in blood and sauces. What now? More shortages of fuel. Another failed rebel raid. I do not care. We are celebrating, Captain. The smaller creature fidgeted uncertainly. The long hairs of its ears laid back in fear, but the officer bowled forward. Hence reports were too important. The Fioruta Lunar Shipyards are destroyed, Councillor. The sector administrator reports that a 117th Punitive Fleet was lost in the moorings. The Suluans, Councillor prose, staring with cold eyes at the captain. What? There's more, Councillor. The Henson Prime Naval Station lost. The Sultani Manufacturing Yards overrun. We've lost contact with the Worulia Prime Sector Administrator's Palace and the Garrison has fallen. Chikuru Prime End of Part 3 Because Someone Had To Part 4 I have learned many hard lessons during the war, Counselor. I have seen things that have given lesser minds nightmares. But thanks to you, I learned a new nightmare. I had always thought the most dangerous thing in the galaxy was a human with something to defend. The Grand Admiral stood on the bridge of the last Council-aligned Dreadnought, the last punitive fleet outstation in orbit on the last bastion of the Council, the home world of the Siloan's people. Fifteen years ago, I obeyed an order I knew into my bones to be the wrong one. I have obeyed the orders ever since, for to do any less would have further damned my soul." to have carried out those orders, and then to give in to my doubts. No, it was an order you gave, but one I obeyed, and I had to live with that. The fleet of the council was a mere few dozen ships. They were all battle-damaged, all near out of fuel and ordnance, and the last stockpiles had been depleted. The last draftees had been drawn and boarded at the remaining warships, and... It was not nearly enough. I believe you too had learned, though, Counselor, far more dangerous than a human with something to defend, is one with nothing to lose. The Grand Admiral of the Council Fleet stared long at the heart of the holographic display that dominated the center of the command deck. They had learned long into the war that things like windows on the bridge were a terrible idea. They had learned long into the war that the Grand Admiral should not also command the ship on which he stood. They learned that females could serve as the lead as well as males, and they learned the importance of philosophy and freedom both of thought and action. The change had been slow, and it had been insidiously tempting, and he had watched it happen. The humans had defeated them before firing the first shot, they had fought a war with the poison of idea and made the acceptance of them a necessity. Everything about the fleet had changed since the beginning of the war about the society, and each changed and has been small, and each change had been necessary and each change had changed them one step closer to defeating themselves. A raid between the home world and its moons was an armada sent its species rebels council fleet deserters, pirates, merchant marines, civilians, and at its center, the last human fleet. They had always had the advantage and quality. Each battle, their ships were better defended, better armed, faster. The last were a pinnacle, arrived like ghosts from the Aether, some long hidden shipyard, some unknown colony, striking or fading into the darkness of space these past few years without a trace. The sight of them shook the Grand Admiral to his core of all he was. There were no running lights along their hulls, no windows. They he never responded to council communications. They were faceless ghosts, avenging demons, and he could not curse them could not even hate them for what they had done to everything that he would ever known. The Grand Admiral turned then to the Councilor. The bastard had not borne the stress of the war while. Since the destruction of Earth and the purge of the last known human colonies, the breadth of the human strategy had become quickly known. They had cropped up across the Council's space, seemingly everywhere at once, and the type of war they'd brought to the Council with the death of their homeworld had been another hard lesson learned by the Grand Admiral. They had called his actions of the Senate Species Rebels an insurgency. What came when the humans stepped on the fore had been far worse, surgical and methodical in its methodology, but so brutal and cold. There was no blind rage in their retaliation, had been terrifyingly orchestrated, and had torn down entire governments. The council, the last one alive, had lost weight. His last of his scales had faded, and he looked half-malted, ragged tendrils of paper-thin skin hung over his face and neck. Once-sharp talons were cracked and yellowed, as were his once-sharp fangs. The counselor sat in his appointed chair, hunched forward, one swine robe stained with fluids both from food and himself, and he mumbled and hissed at the display of the Rebel fleet. Grand Admiral, the Rebel fleet is requesting your attention. It is... Uh, it is the humans. The communications officer did not look up from his station, instead continuing to sift through the interfleet communications. Ever watching for errors or irregularities, Signs that the humans' A.I.'s were at work. The counselor's mumbling and hissing ended, and he froze like a prey might when caught in the scent of a predator. The Grand Admiral let out a disgusted hiss and stepped forward. Put them through. A monitor came to life, and Athena A.I. was displayed against a featureless gray background. Surrender. A single word was delivered, without emotion. There was no hatred nor hint of hope or the bloodless ending. It option was offered, but there were no terms given. It was a chance for a total and complete council surrender. Loyalists would be arrested if not simply torn apart, as he expected for himself and the councilor. He knew then that the Terran ships hadn't a single human aboard them. They were drones controlled by human combat AIs directly, machines fighting for the memory of their creator. How many humans could be left in the galaxy How many had he killed? Not just on Earth, but every colony world that he'd bombarded. Every ship that he had destroyed. But there had been some left out there. Somewhere. But the crews of his fleet would live. His planet might live as well. His family. It was an opportunity he'd been ordered not to give the humans of Earth. And yet, the Athena AI offered it a chance to spare more lives. The end of the war that had raged for far too long. Grand Admiral Tifleet, you are the last loyal sons and daughters, the strength of your will. Your devotion does your ancestors proud. We have held the very precipice, and I know you would do to the memories of those that came before you proud. If I asked it, you would dash yourself upon the enemy's claws. You would pull them down with the weight of your own corpse, and would form a wall to shield the world of your birth. But I ask something of you now, that'll be far harder to accept. The Grand Admiral turned to the last Counselor, who glared at him with a renewed rage. An impotent rage, though, was faded quickly as the Grand Admiral struck him down. A flash of powerfully taloned arm and a gout of blood, and the Counselor fell to the floor. Power down all weapons, we surrender." The class was silent as the teacher fell silent. Across a lion's space, children, just like those in a class, were learning about the war, about the price that was paid for their freedoms, for everything they took for granted. The few short generations passed, some in that classroom had been servants and slaves, others, masters and abusers. Generations of mistreatment and prejudice were slow to fade. But humans had passed on the tools that which needed to do so. Education, equality, and forgiveness. No one needed to be bound by the place in a life to which they were born. They had been long debated over the naming of the school. Some believed it should have been named after the human fleet admiral that had won the first battle against the council, firing the first shots of the war but others had debated for the first to speak out against the council, an old human with a limp, a calm-spoken man who had delivered the first human ideals to bring the council's oppression to an end. In the end, they had won out. The schools found its name after the statue of the old man, Nikolai Brandon Academy, the first school built post-war on the grounds of what had once been the headquarters of the council a place that offered an opportunity to all of open doors and clear futures. A great human once said, If we cannot now end our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. The teacher smiled at a class as the quote of an image of its speaker appeared in the air next to her own holographic image, the face of John F. Kennedy, with a short bio of the dates of his birth and death. No one is trapped by the role in which another may think they were born. No one need be a slave, a servant, a soldier. You are offered a future if you are willing to reach for it, and are willing to work for those around you to secure a bright future for your own children. The bell rang out, and the smile of the dismissive wave of the teacher, the students gathered their things and started filing out the room. All but the Kilton child who ambled towards the teacher's desk and peered at her image. Do you miss them? Athena looked down at the child and smiled warmly, shaking her head. They are not gone, child. They are not many, but every year more children are born and the terraforming efforts on Earth continue. They never sought to rule and when Grand Admiral surrendered, their work was done. The and child's carapace scraped and twitched happily. I want to thank them for what they did. They would just say the same thing they do every time, child. It had to be done. End of part number four and end of miniseries.